Well, it's a privilege to be back together again as we look at this important uh, topic of biblical manhood and womanhood. Um, Last week in our introduction, we looked specifically at six things that were at stake if we don't have a correct perspective biblically on manhood and womanhood. Who remembers what those six things are, or at least one of those things? That's right. So there's six things. Listen carefully. And for those of you that were not here last week, uh, it would be good to go back and listen to it. It was a short introductory lesson, but it really helps provide kind of a context for the class and specific goals um, that I have for the class as well. But six things that were at stake. One is the authority of 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 Scripture. If we don't believe Scripture to be true about biblical manhood and womanhood, Uh, then we're not going to adhere to it. The health of the family is at stake, the health of the church. We said that our worship is at stake. Uh, We said that Bible translations even were at stake. And ultimately, uh, the advancement of the gospel is at stake. Well, today we're going to begin by looking at Genesis at the creation of mankind. Specifically, we're going to look at the creation of man. A general outline of the next few weeks. Today we're going to be talking about uh, how man was created. Uh, Next week we'll be looking more specifically at how woman was created. And then we're going to look at the fall and how that impacted things. And So these are going to provide almost still kind of introductory lessons. Even the material that's mentioned today and looking at how God created man, we're going to go much deeper with in coming weeks in terms of looking at specific roles of men and functions and that kind of thing. But we want to look specifically at what the Bible says about manhood and womanhood. In this area, but indeed in most all areas of life, there's a tendency to go in one of two ditches rather than staying on the straight and narrow. What do I mean by that? Well, as it relates to manhood, the two ditches that I see. On the one hand, you have male passivity, where men are not leading and exercising uh, their God-given right as in dominion and leadership. They're rather becoming complacent with female leadership. That's on the one hand. The second ditch, though, and the other ditch that some men fall into is what I would call an overreach of male authority. And it's really an unbiblical form of patriarchy whereby they exercise dominion and leadership in an unhealthy way that's condemning, it's domineering, and it's unloving uh, toward those around them in an effort to control. So those are kind of the two ditches that we see primarily with men. Now with women, you're not off the hook, women, the two ditches we see with women, one ditch is... Um, an extreme form of passivity where men don't, where women don't exercise their God-given right to speak. That's one ditch. That's one extreme. The second, of course, is that of dominance where they are tempted to lead in areas that are not biblically prescribed. Okay? So we have the two ditches for both men and women. The goal is to avoid them and kind of walk through the straight and narrow and how the, how the Bible prescribes and gives out specific roles to that of men and women. The dangers are, uh, or excuse me, the ditches are very dangerous. 
uh, and they have damaging effects, not only on the person, but also on those around them. If we recognize what the ditches are and even our inclinations toward them, then we can more accurately turn toward Scripture as our God and how to live in a God-honoring way as godly men and women. So my goal is to present what the Bible says about gender, which is quite the opposite of what culture says about gender. We need to recognize that culture is often going to have very different ideas of how it relates to sex and gender. For example, example, culture will say you can choose your own gender, right? And in doing a lot of research on this, I realized that uh, this goes back even to the 1960s is when gender identity really became uh, a term. And it referred to, and I quote, a person's inner sense of belonging to the category of male or female. In time, the term came to include people who identify in other ways. It refers to a person's own sense of their gender, regardless of the sex a doctor assigned to them at birth, end quote. There's a lot of problems with that definition, right? Let's just start with one of the main problems, which is that it denies the existence of God altogether. The last sentence refers to the doctor assigning the sex or gender of a child. Well, how does a doctor do that? By looking at the sexual organs. How do those get there? By God. The psalmist David writes in Psalm 139, 13, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. So one of the issues here, and that if really a foundational truth in this argument of gender is that God is God and we are not. The humanists want to be God and they want to be a mini-lord over their own lives, being able to choose everything, including even how they identify themselves. But God is the sovereign one, and he made male and female. So if God is sovereign and he controls and coordinates the affairs of men, then he also does all his holy will. He determined to make two genders, that of male and female. Certainly if he had wanted a third or a 20th or even a 74th, as we have in today's culture, he would have done so, but he did not. Therefore, the way we will use gender in this class is a slightly more comprehensive category, for it includes God-given sex of our bodies, but also extends to the dispositions that God has designed for us to have as men and as women. Well, let's look at it in terms of, of this way. You know, our gender, how God has made you, either male or female, is actually a gift from God. And because God has gifted us with it, our Gender should be something that we receive joyfully as coming from the very hand of God. Who in their right mind would return a gift to God and say, no, thank you. I want this instead or I want to be this instead. How would that go in your home, parents, if you gave a gift to your child and they said, no, I don't really want that. I want this instead. Well, I know in my home it wouldn't go very well, right? Well, in the same way, we do that, or the culture does that, when they say, no, God, I don't want to be a man, I want to be a woman. First Timothy 4, 4, for everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received 
with thanksgiving. So the lessons taught in the coming months regarding biblical manhood and womanhood apply to everyone. We're all one of two genders, right? So they all apply to, they apply to us. It applies to both the single and the married, both the young and the old. Um, as I mentioned last week, I'm excited to teach this. It's something that I'm passionate about. And frankly, as a Christian husband and father, I want my children to know where I stand, as you probably do too. Uh, in order to fight this battle, we must use the sword of the Spirit, which is what? The Word of God. The Word of God. So let's turn to the Word of God in your copy of God's Word. Turn with me to Genesis 1. We're going to be reading from verses 26 to 31 today, but let me just kind of set the context uh, for this. Remember, first of all, that although this account in Genesis was written most likely 15th century B.C., so some 3,500 years ago, it is God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word, and it is for us today. We read in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The verses that follow describe God's handiwork of all creation. Specifically, we see the first three days of creation are all about God forming, whereby God makes and separates light from darkness, water from sky, and land from water. The next three days, days four through six, are about God filling what he has formed. So he fills the heavens with the lights the waters and seas with fish and birds, and the land with creatures. But then we get to verse 26 in Genesis 1, and this is where a change is made. God makes something, specifically someone, that has never been made before. Genesis 1, verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And so it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning. The sixth day. And we're going to look under the creation account found in Genesis 1 to 2 today under four headings. And again, specifically applying it to the context of how God created man. Uh, women, don't worry, your time's coming next week, but still listen in on this. So, four categories that we're going to talk about today, four headings. How was, God, how was man created? Secondly, who is man to reflect? Thirdly, how does God provide for that man? And fourth, commands given to the man. First of all, let's consider how man was created. To answer this, we've got to actually go to Genesis 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, 
and the man became a living creature. So how was man created? From the dust of the ground, right? So from, we could say from dirt. Now let's not stop there, okay? He was created from the dust of the ground like the other beasts, but he was different. Matthew Henry says, he was made of the common dust of the ground, a very unlikely thing to make a man of. But the same infinite power that made the world of nothing made man its masterpiece of next to nothing. And you can imagine upon being made, man had all of visible creation all around him. Adam looked out and saw birds and trees and grass and fields and animals and uh, water. Man was made the same day as the beast and from the same soil, but he was different. And he was to be different. Which leads us to our second point, who is man to reflect? Well, unlike any of the other animals previously created by God, human beings, this is both man and woman, were created in the image of God. In this way, men and women are to reflect God. This is key to the Bible's teaching about mankind. We see in Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. In verse 26, the preceding verse, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Pastor Phillips writes, both image and likeness speak of resemblance. The word for image has the meaning of something that is carved or cut out. After our likeness makes much the same point, defining man as like God, though not divine. John Calvin explains it this way, man resembles him and that in him, God's glory is contemplated as in a mirror. So what does that mean? It means if you were to hold a mirror up to yourself, this is a humbling exercise, who, what are you to see? Or more specifically, who are you to see? You're to see a Christian who is to reflect the very image of the Lord. And so how is that different than... I know some of you are dog lovers, others are cat lovers. What makes you different than a dog or cat or any other kind of animal? You have a soul, right? And as the children's catechism, which I love so much, says, you have a soul that can never die, right? And so therein is the difference between man and beast, we could say, or man and animal. And because you and I have souls that can never die, we are made in the actual image of God and we're to reflect his glory to all mankind. Matthew Henry writes, man is not made in the image, or excuse me, in the likeness of any creature that went before him, but in the likeness of his creator. Yet still between God and man, there is an infinite distance. Christ only is the express image of God's person as the son of his father having the same nature. That's true. Christ is the ultimate representative. He is the second person of the Trinity, after all. So he does reflect perfectly the image of God. We, though, as not only created in his image, but as Christians called to be like Christ, as we grow in our sanctification 
can reflect that image more and more. To be made in God's image means that you and I have purpose and meaning in our lives, namely to reflect him and to glorify him who made us and gave us our being. So the next time you are tempted with lies from Satan, and you will be, and I will be, maybe these lies or things like this, you don't matter, your life has no meaning, you have no purpose, remember that you do, because you are made in the very image of God, you are in his likeness. It is no accident, of course, that any of you were made, that any of you were called by him to saving faith, that any of you are even, by his providence, even here today, you are an image bearer of the Most High. Well, thirdly, I want us to notice how God provides for man. He provides physical nourishment for the man, as we see in verses 29 through 30. He gives him every plant and every tree with its fruit. So God placed Adam in the beauty of the garden, but he doesn't just create him and just leave him on his own and leave him helpless. He actually supplies for his physical sustenance. Now, we're going to talk more next week about God's provision of companionship and a helper for Adam, namely in the form of woman, something that another animal could not provide. But in the context of today's lesson, let's look at how God provides physically. He does this for us today, though, doesn't he? We looked at this even in the context of the Lord's Prayer back in the spring, how he gives us our daily bread. We may not be able to see his provision even tomorrow or next week or next month or next year, but he gives us and provides for us what we need today. And so we're to trust in his promises that he will provide for our every need. God's provision for man did not stop on day six of creation. It continues for us today. Well, fourth, notice the commands or the directives given to the man. It says, be fruitful and multiply and exercise dominion. Part of his being fruitful and multiplying is what he's cultivating and, and causing to grow, which is what we're going to talk about today. Part of it is in the context of what we're going to discuss next week with the woman. But let's talk more specifically today about this aspect of dominion. Genesis 2 verses 15 and then 19 through 20. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And then in verse 19, now out of the ground the Lord God formed had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. So part of man's role in exercising dominion was to name the animals, name the creatures that God had created. This in part shows how man was to exercise leadership over what had already been created. But he also placed, notice in verse 15, he also noticed or placed Adam in the garden to work it and keep it. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon writes on this. There was to be occupation for man. Sometimes we think about Adam just being in the Garden of Eden and just enjoying it. There was actual work, as it states in Genesis 2.15, to work and keep. Spurgeon goes on, 
There is to be occupation, even in paradise, just as they who are before the throne of God and glory serve him day and night in his temple. Listen to this. Idleness gives no joy, but holy employment will add to the bliss of heaven. So as men, we're not to have idle hands. We're to be working and cultivating and keeping uh, and doing work that ultimately will glorify the Lord and bless others around them. Certainly man was to enjoy the creation. We're not negating that. He was to enjoy the creation and exercise dominion over it, but he was also to work and to keep. Now, the Hebrew word used here for work is avad, which is an extremely common word, actually, in the Old Testament. As a verb, it means to work, serve, labor, cultivate, perform acts of worship. Thus, Dr. Phillips writes, Adam was called by God to till and cultivate the garden so it would grow and bear an abundance of fruit. Thus, the command to work links up with the earlier mandate to be fruitful and fill the earth. Now, the inference from this passage is that men are to be busy working, cultivating, making things grow. Now, some of y'all may be farmers. I'm not a farmer. This passage does not mean that all men have to be farmers, okay? But it does mean that in whatever we are doing, in the work that God's given us to do, in our relationships, we're to be cultivating and bearing fruit. Is that you, men? Are you busy working and cultivating? It's not an either-or. You're not to be working and not cultivating or cultivating and not working. We're to be working and cultivating. But we're not just called to work and to work. We're also called to keep. The Hebrew word for keep is shamar which means to watch and guard, protect, take under custody, exercise care. So man was to guard the animals and protect them, exercising dominion and governance over them. Similarly, men today are to guard and to be watchful. They should guard and protect others, always exercising patient care for those to which the Lord has given him responsibility over. We're going to talk more about this in coming weeks, but what I want you to do, just around your tables right now, discuss this. First of all, how practically are men to work, cultivate, and make things grow? What does that look like day in and day out? To work, cultivate, and make things grow. And secondly, what does it look like for the man to watch and guard and protect and exercise care. Everybody got it? Talk about those two things around your tables, and then we'll share. All right, so let's come back together. Remember the first question I gave you to consider was this, to discuss around your tables how practically men can work and keep and make things grow, right? Uh, What were some answers that you all had for that? There was a lot of discussion. All right, Joel.
True. So most men find it easy to work, right? Uh, but we find it harder sometimes to cultivate. And part of that cultivation, as they said, was being intentional about what you're doing, who you're pursuing, that kind of thing. Good. Andy? He's not going to say it, but he says there are hard roads. He tells himself every day he's not working for a man. He's working for the Lord. Indeed. That's right. Not working for a man, you're working for the Lord, right? It's true. Others? Kevin? Yes, indeed. So the women, our wives need to know that we want to be like Christ as men, right? And if we're to be like Christ, what are we to do? We're to be serious about growing in our own holiness and sanctification and pursuing the Lord. Yes, William. That's great. So in terms of particularly working, but also even more particularly cultivating, it's not that you're only doing this a certain number of days a week, right? It, there's a constancy and a, a habit that Adam was into that Lord had given him to continually be cultivating and growing. Dan? I think we all know that sometimes work can be hard, but God gives us a sense of satisfaction in putting in a good hard day's work. Indeed. God has created that within us. Yep. To work it and then to see what comes of it. The fruit of it, yeah. God does give inherently men right satisfaction that comes from their work and seeing fruit of their labor, so to speak, right? Secondly, uh, what does it mean for a man, practically speaking, day in and day out, to watch, to guard, to protect, and exercise care? We won't spend quite as long on this one for sake of time, but who had an answer for that? Yeah, Gabe. Yeah, so it's, it's guarding ourselves, right, as men and being in the Word of God and be growing, but it's also being aware of, as he said, influences coming into our home uh, for those that are under our care, spe- specifically our wives and our children. Yeah, for sure. Anybody else? I saw another hand somewhere. Yeah, Chuck. There's an eternality with what we're doing even day in and day out in cultivating, right? And that, that, uh, that lives on far beyond us, at least on earth, right? So how you're cultivating and investing in the lives of others around you, 
uh, is an important and creates a lasting impact. You know, one of the questions I started with, in fact, the question I started with last week was, what is man? Remember that? We can see from today's lesson, man, first of all, was created by dust, right, from dust, but he was created to image God as his image bearer. And furthermore, as we see in Genesis 2, he is to work, he is to keep, he is to cultivate. And that means working vocationally, yes, but it also means cultivating and investing in the lives of those around you. It could be your wife, could be your children, could be extended family, could be co-workers that were to be intentionally pursuing those relationships and causing them to bear much fruit, right? That's what we're to be doing as men. Uh, may it be so uh, for each one of us as we seek to be godly men. Yeah. So the outworking of all of this is reflective many times in our children and our grandchildren and in God's faithfulness to them. Now, that doesn't mean that all of our children and all of our grandchildren are going to be called to saving faith, right? So for those of you that are having children or grandchildren not walking with the Lord, don't be discouraged by that, but don't give up praying uh, that the Lord has his hand upon them and pray that the Lord would bring them to saving faith. But in many ways, that is true, that the outworking, the fruit that's produced by us men working and cultivating and guarding and keeping is fruit that comes forth not only in our own lives, but in the lives of our children and grandchildren, and Lord willing, great-grandchildren, should the Lord tarry. All right, well, let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you that it is true. And we pray specifically for us as men today that you would help us, Lord, to reflect you, to image you. When people see us, would they not just see us, but would they see Christ living in us? And help us in bearing your image to work well as unto the Lord, not unto men, to cultivate, to to invest in others that there may be fruit that comes from our lives in a way that we would not be glorified, but, Lord, we would point the finger and say, you are being glorified in our lives by your grace and by the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.